If you're looking for something to do this May 30th through June 2nd, why don't you join us at CrimeCon in Nashville, Tennessee? We can all rub elbows with people like John Walsh, John Douglas, and Chris Hansen. Come and visit Murder in the Rain on Podcast Row, where we'll be sitting next to some of our own favorite podcasts. You can get 10% off your tickets by using code RAIN at checkout at CrimeCon.com. Back in April, Melissa Lucio was on death row in Texas, making headlines as her supporters fought tooth and nail to stop her execution. Their efforts worked, and now she has been granted a new trial. This episode, originally featured over on our Patreon, tells the story of Melissa's life and what might have actually happened to have caused her daughter Mariah's death. This is Murder in the Rain, where each week Emily Rowney, Alicia Holland, and Josh McCullough tell true crime stories of the Pacific Northwest. Murder in the Rain contains graphic content. Listener discretion is advised. Melissa. Yes. Hey, this is Jeff Leach. Yes, sir. How are you today? I'm doing fine. How are you? Good. Have you heard the news? No, what? You haven't heard the news yet? No, what happened? The Court of Criminal Appeals issued a stay of your execution for Wednesday. <gasps> We just got word about 15 minutes ago. Oh my God! <laughs> that is wonderful! Oh my God! What does that mean? <laughs> well, well, it means, um, it means you're gonna wake up on Thursday morning. Um, oh my and, um, You're not you're not making the trip to Huntsville on Wednesday, and the um, the order was very strong in that you're gonna. It appears that you're gonna get a new trial at the very least. They. Oh my goodness, that is so wonderful. Thank you so much. <laughs> that is great. Thank you so much, Mr. Leeds. Well. Melissa, I love you to death. There's a lot of really great people who've been working on this on your behalf. And just, I would say millions who've been praying for you. You know that. And um, um, it's been an honor to to fight for you and believe so strongly in your cause. And of course, remember Mariah today. And I know you do as well. Um, But this isn't the the end. And uh, we're going to continue to work together to make sure that... um, that the, that the right thing is done and that hopefully, ultimately, you're free. That's the goal. Thank you. Thank you so much. Thank you.
In the days before April 27th, our Instagram, along with others, were posting phone numbers and information about how to contact Texas Governor Abbott, requesting he grant clemency to Melissa Lucio, a woman who was set to be put to death. The outcry and calls worked and her life thus far has been spared. There's additional good news. Not only will she not be murdered by the state, but her appeals are being reviewed, which could lead to a new trial and possible release. So, before her next hearing, let's take a look back at her case to understand why there was such an outcry surrounding her possible death and what chance she may have of being cleared of all wrongdoing. For most of the information for this mini, I watched the award-winning documentary The State of Texas vs. Melissa, which is available on Hulu. It obviously has much more information than what I can give here, so I highly recommend watching. It's well-made, informative, and you definitely feel some serious emotions when watching her children cry about everything they've been through. I will give a caution to viewers, they do show out-of-focus autopsy photos of the baby. Melissa is a flawed woman. She has a dark past filled with demons that were never dealt with. She made choices some of us would disagree with, like having more children than she could handle or provide for. She did things some people would never dream of doing, like drugs in the bathroom while her children looked for her. But those choices were not what she went to trial for. Those bad things weren't what almost had her put to death. It might be hard for some to do, but judgments towards her choices must be kept separate from the accusations that were made against her and nearly cost her her life. What matters is that she is a human who deserves to have the justice system work correctly for her. Melissa was born in June 1969 in Lubbock, Texas. Her mother, Esperanza, worked hard to manage her children, whom she had to raise on her own after Melissa's father passed away when she was just an infant. Melissa and her sisters always got along. With their mother often gone working, they had to learn how to take care of each other. When Melissa was seven, she claims her mother's boyfriend began to sexually assault her. Unlike most cases we hear about when the children don't say anything, Melissa told her mother about the molestation. Her mother's response to the allegations was for Melissa to be quiet. When Melissa persisted, Esperanza flat out told her she did not believe her. So, Kilo, the supposed abuser, was allowed to continue the abuse for two years. Sadly, as we do hear so often, this left Melissa, at nine years old, in a space to be victimized by other family members who perhaps sensed her vulnerability or had learned Esperanza would let them get away with doing it. Speaking to the filmmakers, Melissa herself still holds blame, saying she allowed herself to be a victim over and over again. When asked about the abuse her boyfriend supposedly committed towards her own child, Esperanza said she can't bring herself to think about it. Her mind literally can't handle it. Never reporting the abuse or getting treatment for it, Melissa's experiences led to her being a reserved child, but she always took the motherly role with her sisters. Her abuse had made her protective. The theme of abusive men in her life continued. When Melissa was married at just 16 years old, no one thought to ask her why she was so desperate to get away from the home, her mother, or maybe just the bad memories. Searching for love, care, and attention, Melissa knew she wanted to have a big family. So by the age of 24, she already had five children with Guadalupe Lucio. Just like the other men in her life, Melissa claims he was a drug and alcohol addict who physically abused her. 
After she and Guadalupe broke up, she had seven more children with her husband, Robert Alvarez. Of course, he didn't end the cycle. It has been reported he was physically abusive and would rape Melissa. His violence was brutal, throwing beer bottles at her head, spitting on her, dragging her by her hair, knocking her head into walls, and kicking her with his steel-toed boots. Twelve children may sound overwhelming, but for Melissa, being a mother gave her purpose. She knew it was the thing she was meant to do with her life. Of course, passion doesn't pay the bills, so the family struggled. Her children recall the days they would have to walk to the Loaves and Fishes food pantry after school to get dinner. Playtime would be in the park before heading home, usually to a small home, never a space bigger than two bedrooms for all 14 of them. While the homes didn't have space, they did have love. Sure, Melissa would discipline her children with a butt pat or arm pinch, but she didn't scream at them, hit them, or abuse them. Her children felt that as a mother, she was calm and did a good job. Her kids were bathed, had a place to sleep, and fed to the best of her ability. The lack of money meant cupboards and stomachs were often empty. Furnishings didn't consist of more than a kitchen table, a chair, and mattresses on the floor. The kids would add to the home when they could, bringing home furniture they would find on the street. The care of the children was taxing on Melissa in many ways. While her oldest, Daniela, would assist in the role of second mother to John, Alexandria, Selena, Renee, Melissa, Richard, Robert, Gabrielle, Adriana, Sarah, and Mariah, she found herself quelling the pain and numbing the stress by using drugs, a habit she had picked up from her drug-dealing ex-husband. Not wanting her children to witness her using, Melissa would lock herself in the bathroom. No matter how long the children would bang on the door, crying out for their mother, she would not come out until she had come down. She refused to let them see her in that condition. The documentary wasn't clear about the drugs. There was a mention of cocaine, but I don't know if that was her only drug or the main drug that she used. As much as she tried, there were times the children witnessed her using or being high, but she couldn't stop. The weight of her past was just too much to carry every day while trying to manage a kindergarten's class worth of children. As her children got older, Melissa enjoyed the more friend-than-parent-child relationship she had with her eldest. She and Daniela would go out dancing every week because music was always part of the home. The family would play music and sing and dance together. Because of her trauma as a child, Melissa always felt as though she was the black sheep of the family. So as much as she may have needed it, she never asked for help nor did she complain about how difficult her life was. In fact, her own sisters had no idea how bad things had become. They didn't know their sister was struggling to constantly feed her children, that their homes were not only small but in dangerous parts of town, that inside their impoverished home piles of trash were building up, that the water would get turned off sometimes for as long as a month at a time, forcing the family to flush by using a bucket they would use a neighbor's hose to fill with water. Moving 26 times in 10 years, the family was eventually houseless, living in a park near their schools for six weeks, only able to eat, bathe, and brush their teeth at school. Through the years, Child Protective Services had been involved with the family, but in the thousands of pages of reports for Melissa's family, there was no mention of abuse towards the children or that Melissa ever showed she was violent, dangerous, or harmful towards the kids. The worst it would be was a failed drug test. When 2007 came around, things started looking up for Melissa. She was sober, pregnant, this time with twins, children that would be numbers 13 and 14, and she would soon be starting a new janitorial job. 
Excitedly, the family was moving once again, this time from a dilapidated second-story apartment to a trailer. This was good news as the youngest, two-and-a-half-year-old Mariah, had been known to fall. Mariah had a turned foot, leading to an abnormal gait and frequent falls, something everyone in the family had witnessed on multiple occasions. That day, the last in the old place, was hectic. Twelve kids, a pregnant mother, all trying to gather their few belongings to pack up for the new home. It's hard enough to keep an eye on one or two kids. As someone who was often left to manage rooms with 20, 30, even 40 kids, I can only imagine how impossible it would be to manage 12 kids who weren't limited to one classroom. That day at the apartment was as chaotic as it sounds. The kids were running around trying to help, and we all know how helpful kids' help is, when suddenly Mariah fell down the long, tall, janky stairwell that was outside the building leading out of their front door. Falling all the way down to the concrete landing, she shockingly seemed to just shake it off and appeared to be okay. When the children screamed out, Melissa came to help, but didn't take Mariah to the hospital as she seemed perfectly fine. The family continued the move and got to the new home. As the hours went on, Mariah's body started to look bruised, presumably from the fall. It was February 17th. As the family settled into their new home, they noticed Mariah was acting different. She wouldn't eat. She only seemed interested in sleeping. It was the second night in the home, and Melissa continued settling in when Mariah wanted to go to bed for the night. So she went and laid down on her mattress, her brother Bobby kissed her, and she slipped off to sleep. Looking at her later, it seemed something was wrong. Attempts were made to wake her, but to no avail. Somehow, something had caused Mariah to die in her sleep. Realizing she was dead, the family was devastated. Melissa just sat and cried. Help was called and emergency personnel arrived. When paramedics started questioning Melissa as to what could have happened, she told one of them that Mariah had fallen down the stairs recently. Perhaps that had done something. But looking to the few steps that led to the trailer's entrance, the paramedic was suspicious and shared his concerns with the police. As part of the process, all of the children were sent with CPS. Within two hours of discovering her baby dead, the pregnant mother was taken in for an interrogation with police that went on for seven hours until just after 3 a.m. As the interview went on, police were bold enough to show the grieving mother photos of her dead child. They didn't care about her feelings. They had one question they needed her to answer. Why was her dead child covered in bruises? While Melissa admitted to a butt pat or a pinch, she could only guess it was the fall on the stairs that had left her daughter's body black and blue. And when I say Mariah was bruised, I mean bruised. Her arms, legs, chest, back were covered, and more than what you would have expected from the fall. Or if they had come from the fall, she probably should have gone to the hospital. They also appeared to be at different stages of appearance and healing. Mm. <laughs> you have some thoughts? Yeah, I, I'm i struggling with this one so far. I actually don't know this case. First of all, as a parent, I can't imagine not taking mm. my child to, the, to a doctor, but I also don't live in poverty. Right. I don't have a bazillion kids. Like, right. I don't know. I can't empathize because I don't 
Yeah, she just starting a new job or was right. about to. I doubt that she she was probably in between insurance. Exactly. If she, ha- if was she even, even had offered it. it. Yeah. And they so, weren't just like paying her under the table or something. But from the perspective of someone who came to help this child, that would be a red flag. You right. see these bruises in different phases. And you only see like two stairs. You see a bunch of kids in a small trailer. Like what right. is what do you think? You know? Right. So I feel like so far they're doing the right thing. Um also, I think it's pretty normal for police to show photos to someone that they're suspecting of this. Right. So, so far, I don't know. She's looking pretty, pretty guilty okay. from their perspective. Okay. At this point. Yeah, that's fair. As if the photos weren't enough, detectives then brought in a doll and demanded Melissa show them where she had struck Mariah. Hesitantly, she delicately showed how she would spank her children. But that wasn't good enough, and the detectives berated her to show them over and over, harder every time, how she would hit the children. If I bring you all those pictures, if I beat you half to death, like that little child was beat, I bet you you'd die too. So I did not beat my daughter, sir. No? Not that cruel to my children. What are all those bruises on your little child? Lay her down and show me how you would spank her. But was it like, was it one time or was it several times? Several times. Show me how. But show me the same force you would use with your right or left hand? Left, right hand. Would you be standing up or sitting down? Both. How how would you do it when you're sitting down? Show me how you would do it. I mean, the way you actually did it. Just get it over. I just picked her real hard on her back. Well, do it real hard like like you would do it. Like the way you would do it. That's the way I would do it. I mean, I wouldn't pound on her. But... Mm-hmm. Or do it. You done. Was it harder? No. With every question and push for information, Melissa's story remained the same. In fact, she denied harming her daughter or being responsible for her death over 100 times through the seven-hour ordeal. The detectives didn't care. They knew they were dealing with a lying child killer, and they were going to get the answer they wanted. This led to Melissa not taking responsibility for Mariah's death, but agreeing that she must have been the one who caused the bruising. Once the confession was made, all eyes were fixated on Melissa and how it could be proven she was the murderer. There was never a question of what happened, only why did you do this? Meanwhile, Melissa's children were being placed in foster care, splitting up the siblings into multiple homes and facilities. Some of the kids, like eight-year-old Bobby and his sister, were paired together. What they remember from that time was crying every night, just hoping they could go home and be with their mother. But that wouldn't happen, ever. Unbeknownst to Melissa, the timing of Mariah's death would determine her fate more than any facts or evidence would. Just like the bombardment of commercials and debates we're all experiencing because of the upcoming midterms, the Cameron County District Attorney, Armando Villalobos, was up for re-election. His campaign faced an uphill battle thanks to a gaffe the prosecutors and a judge had made, leading to a murderer getting free. For that story, we need to go back to 2005, for what I'm pretty sure will be covered in another mini very soon. According to the court proceedings, Amit Livingston killed his girlfriend who was attempting to break up with him. It took three weeks, but he was arrested and charged with murder. 
In February of 2007, he took a plea deal, admitting guilt and receiving a 23-year sentence. In a move that isn't unheard of but was not usually permitted in a murder case, Amit, the confessed killer, was given 60 days, that is two months, of pre-prison freedom as to sort out his affairs. Oh my gosh. The time was given as part of his plea deal. My orthodontist wouldn't even let me get my braces off before I gave birth to Chloe. (laughs) And this guy... (laughs) What a comparison. This guy gets out. (laughs) 14 years later. (laughs) I think you need to talk to somebody about that. It was the first thing that came to my mind. She made me wait and get him off later. When his turn and date arrived, you are not going to believe this. He didn't show up. Oh, he didn't show up? Uh, when shocking. he's supposed to go to his 23-year sentence? He had his two months to get his affairs in order. Multiple warrants were issued, but again, I hope you're sitting down. Those didn't inspire a turnaround in behavior from Amit. In fact, he wasn't caught until seven years later. What? Were they even looking? Uh, yeah, they had a manhunt and everything. That's why I'm like, that needs to be a whole mini <sighs> on its own because yeah, that thing's a mess. The optics of catching but then releasing a killer were not good for Armando. He knew he would need a big attention-getting case that would appease the largely Catholic voting population of his district. It just so happened Mariah died five days after Amit's disappearance, and Melissa, viewed as a poor, uneducated drug user, was the perfect target. Nothing would please Armando's constituents more than seeing a child-killing, drug-using mother sent to death. A slick politician, he knew how to work the public's perception. He would frequently take over cases once they went to trial so he could be the face of the winning team. Melissa's case would be another he would take the helm of. This meant that in pursuit of a conviction, he and his team would have a mountain of evidence they would have to ignore or dismiss, starting with her children. After Mariah died, some of the older children were interviewed by a mitigation specialist. Melissa's son, Rene, was happy to share what he knew about Mariah. At just eight years old, he assured the interviewer he was never asked to keep anything about his mom or Mariah secret. When his mother would dole out punishments, it was the same for all the kids. She would get mad, and he would be sent to the corner. It was never much more than that. Another sibling, Daniela, backed up Melissa's story. She had seen Mariah fall down the stairs at the old apartment. The fall didn't appear to be all that shocking to any of the kids. Besides Mariah's clumsy tendencies, the stairs were treacherous, steep, and unstable. A different child expressed they were feeling scared and unsafe because they were missing their parents. This same child also confirmed the fall and confirmed scratches found on Mariah were from it. Later, given a psychological exam, doctors found nothing in Melissa's background that indicated she met the criteria of mothers who killed their children. Obviously, not everyone fits in a box when it comes to mental health or the safety of their children, but usually there is a history of exhibiting abuse towards the kids, retaliatory behavior, severe mental illness, or other violence, none of which Melissa displayed. With no further investigation needed, Melissa was charged with capital murder and taken to trial. Everyone expected her public defender would request her supposed confession to be withheld, or at the very least, attorney Peter Gilman would plan on bringing in an expert in false confessions. But that didn't happen. It didn't help that Melissa met her defense attorney, Mr. Gilman, at her arraignment. 
without listening to his client's pleas of innocence or offering to make any kind of defensive plan with her, Gilman suggested she take the offer that had been given by the state. Plead guilty, take 30 years. That way, he optimistically told her, she could get back home to her children when she was only 68 years old. Oh, my God. Right there, that's enough to file an appeal. Mm -hmm. He didn't do his job. Exactly. Just like during the interview, Melissa's story did not change, and she begged for her innocence to be believed. It wasn't, and they were off to trial. Walking into the courtroom, Melissa couldn't help but notice the walls adorned with gaudy portraits of the powerful old white men of court's past. She was scared as she had no idea what to expect. She had never been in any kind of legal trouble. Melissa's mother, Esperanza, felt that if the state was willing to go to trial, they must have found enough evidence to do so. So she believed her daughter had killed Mariah. Why would she not believe a judge, jury, and prosecutor? The recorded confession, which was not suppressed, was presented, but only the end part when she agreed with the police that she did harm her child. The hours of interrogation, threats, and intimidation were not shown. Desperately looking at her jury, Melissa naively thought all she would have to do was convince just one person on the jury to believe what had really happened, that this was an easily explainable accident. If she was guilty of anything, it was being an overwhelmed mother who couldn't keep her eyes on all of her kids all the time. If you're like me and there's a foreign language that you regret not learning in school, it's never too late to start with Babbel. Babbel is the language learning app that sold more than 10 million subscriptions. Thanks to Babbel's addictively fun and easy bite-sized language lessons, you can finally cross learning a new language off your list. I started using Babbel two months ago to learn Spanish. I chose Spanish because it's spoken in 21 countries and your girl loves to travel. With Babbel, you only need 10 minutes to complete a lesson, so you can start having a real-life conversation in a new language in as little as three weeks. There are so many ways to learn with Babbel. In addition to lessons, you can access podcasts, games, videos, stories, and even live classes. Plus, it comes with a 20-day money-back guarantee. Right now, get up to 55% off your subscription when you go to babbel.com slash rain. That's babbel.com slash rain for up to 55% off your subscription. Babbel, language for life. In most cases, especially in regards to the murder of a child, you would think the first thing a lawyer would do would be to put the witnesses to the event on the stand. In this case, it would have been a handful of Melissa's own children. Bobby, who was only eight at the time, expected he would get to tell the strangers deciding his mother's fate that she was never violent. She was barely a disciplinarian. And Mariah was a healthy baby, with the exception of crying a lot. Not any more than the average baby, but it was a lot of crying to an eight-year-old. He could have shared how social Mariah was, that everyone knew she fell a lot and that she had bruises. But the bruises were never bad enough to be remarked on by people outside of the home. He could even give an eyewitness account to the fall, her crying, and walking off. But he would never get that chance. Mr. Gilman convinced Melissa to not have the children testify, scaring her out of it by warning of the harm cross-examination by the prosecution would do to them. That, of course, wasn't the end of the laundry list of bad choices made by Gilman. 
Not only did he not want witnesses who could confirm his client's story, but he, according to Melissa's family, never spoke to any members of her family. Through the trial, she had no character witnesses, not a friend or even a neighbor who spoke on her behalf, no one to paint a picture of the kind, caring, struggling mother she was. I think it goes without saying what kind of picture that painted to the jury as to what kind of person she was. Unfazed by not being asked for an interview, Daniela, one of Melissa's daughters, went to Mr. Gilman herself. She had been a witness the day of the fall, but her story was a little different, and it matched the admission another daughter had made during initial interviews. Daniela claimed that on the day of Mariah's fall, she had seen her other sister, Alexandria, or Alex, hitting Mariah's head on the concrete after she fell to the ground. When she yelled for her to stop, Alex's reaction was cold and emotionless. As for their relationship, Mariah was known by all of the kids to be scared of Alex as she bullied her, even physically abused her, leaving marks on Mariah's body. As Daniela told the story, Gilman wrote it down. When she left, he ignored the new groundbreaking information and told his staff to do the same. Oh my God. This account seemed pretty legitimate, as when she was speaking with the mitigator at the start of the investigation, Alex admitted to being aggressive towards Mariah. Their rivalry was known in the family as Alex was vocal about Mariah not being her real sister due to them having different fathers. Alex made it clear that she didn't and would never love Mariah. Melissa had even seen bruises on Mariah and assumed that they had come from Alex. Some of those bruises were the same ones she took blame for during the interview as to protect her daughter. So that explains the different phases of bruising. Mm, or does it? On the day in question, Alex didn't confess to pushing Mariah down the stairs, but she did fight with Mariah because she was crying, which led to her falling down the stairs. Again, this was all brought to Gilman's attention. When he and Melissa discussed Alex, he made it clear that bringing that information forward would only lead to charges against her child. As a teen, Alex had her whole life in front of her. So Melissa agreed to not allow Alex to be blamed and continued to fight for her innocence. Gilman never even considered using the story of Alex and Mariah to at least create reasonable doubt. When the documentary filmmaker later asked him about using the information to protect the client it was his job to defend, he simply stopped talking. And it's possible he was right, that an investigation would have then consumed her daughter. But being that she was a juvenile and it was supposedly an accident, I kind of doubt much would have happened to her legally. I'm not sure the parameters of all of that, but this information was not given to Melissa. She continued to listen to her lawyer, who seemed to be confused as to how to look out for his own client. Melissa wasn't suspicious of Mr. Gilman, but she was confused about some of his choices, as was Lynn Marie Garcy, who was hired as a private investigator for the defense. As part of her job, she had discovered some pertinent information for Melissa's case. When she presented it to Gilman, he more or less dismissed it. This triggered a red flag warning for Lynn. She knew then and there Gilman was up to something. This was a bad deal. Lynn would later call the court proceedings for Melissa a kangaroo court. It was clear minds were made up and sides were taken from the start. She was horrified on the occasions when the judge and jury would all laugh together. As weak as the state's case was, they did have the medical examiner on their side. It was Norma Farley, the M.E., who really triggered the investigation into Melissa. 
processing Mariah's body, she found bruises and markings covering her small body, and they appeared to be a result of abuse. In her opinion, it was the worst case of abuse she'd ever seen. There were scrapes on her neck. Her head was covered in contusions. During an internal examination, a brain hemorrhage, thought to have been brought on by a hit or a kick done by Melissa. All of which begged the question, since when do medical examiners dictate the direction of an investigation? The state used the findings to claim the abuse had taken place over weeks or even months. Yet somehow, no other children had injuries, nor did anyone hear or witness abuse towards Mariah, or at least not at Melissa's hands. After no real defense was presented, it was only Melissa who was surprised by the guilty verdict. Armando got a big win, putting the first Hispanic woman on Texas's death row. He wasn't the only one excited by the outcome. When the death penalty was handed down, there were jumps of joy. Others, including members of the jury, were high-fiving. It was a room full of celebration. Except, of course, for Melissa and her family. She slipped into the disassociation she had trained herself to do during the darkest times of her life. Family members screamed and cried. When taken back to her cell, her new permanent home, Melissa could only curl up and go to sleep. The verdict got Armando the press he wanted. A woman, a mother, a child killer was on death row. He was a hero again. The Cameron County prosecutor, Alfredo Palita, was also pleased with the outcome. According to him, the only reason the jury came to that conclusion was based on the evidence presented. If Melissa hadn't wanted to face the death penalty, she should have taken the deal he offered. It was her fault for not only wanting to go to trial, but for being so arrogant as to think she could win. Before we got to where we were at the end of April, making calls to politicians and hope they would save Melissa's life, there were more court appearances. Appeals were made. She, along with the Innocence Project, went all the way to the Supreme Court. In October of 2021, her appeal was denied. She had no other options. Her death date was set for the 27th. Shockingly, the Texas Court of Criminal Appeals halted her execution two days before she was set to be killed. She will now be able to present previously unshared evidence, after which she will hopefully be vindicated and released. So, what is the evidence her new team will be presenting? Going back to the initial interview with police, a psychologist studied the video, pointing out that for all of those hours, she was given no food or water. Additionally, she had a history filled with controlling, authoritative, and abusive men. She didn't have the tools to defend herself against three police officers demanding her to do what they said. As far as her apparently distant emotional response to the police and her daughter's death, the doctor diagnosed her as having a disassociation psychological effect found quite often in victims of abuse. Just as she had disconnected during her verdict, when faced with potential danger or stress, she had always mentally removed herself from the situation. She had trained herself to say yes, to simply comply. Whistleblower Norma Villanueva had the same bad feelings about Gilman as Lynn. She had been on his staff and had heard and read the information that had been provided regarding Alex and Mariah. She also knew it had been purposely suppressed. When Gilman was asked about it for the film, he sort of remembers hearing about it, but doesn't have the file memorized. He did what he could to present useful information. 
Looking back, he supposes he could have used it, as the case couldn't have gone any worse, but he's certain that the Alex-Mariah relationship wouldn't have changed the outcome or saved Melissa's life. Lynn's feelings surrounding the possible sabotage of the case were only heightened when, after D.A. Armando won re-election, Peter Gilman was hired, at a higher pay rate than even senior members of the office, to work for the district attorney, leaving most people believing he threw the case at the request of Armando so he could win a capital case, thus re-election. That sounds about right to me. Nothing shocking there. Gilman scoffed at the implication. He hadn't considered even working with the DA until he was offered the job. Besides, the fault of the loss fell squarely on Melissa, according to him. When they first met, she was emotionless. When he tried to talk to her about the case, she acted certain everything would just work out and she wouldn't really engage. What was he supposed to do when the person he was trying to help didn't appear to want any? As Melissa's case gained more attention, more focus was put on the surrounding characters. In fact, it was the motivation of another election that had assistant DA Michael Wynn wanting to make serious changes in the district attorney's office. He had seen the mass corruption and bribery that had taken place. One of the biggest gigs was Armando's deal with the drug cartel at the border. The cartel would make money, pay him off, and in exchange, they would receive lighter sentences and better treatment. He was known for intimidating people, throwing his name and status around to get whatever he wanted. You don't want to do the favor, he's asking? Well, be prepared for a longer sentence. When Michael realized how bad things had gotten, like how Armando would purposely put himself on Catholic-appealing cases, including multiple other death penalty ones, he grew concerned about the validity of those cases. Running on a platform of reform and doing the right thing for Melissa, Michael was elected. As for Armando... He's currently serving 13 years in prison amongst the people he put there for bribery. Going to trial, his staffers testified against him. Apparently, you aren't supposed to pay off judges. Well, I'm not that surprised, but I am surprised he went to jail for it. Uh, That is surprising. Yeah, isn't that fun that the behavior is not surprising whatsoever, but the fact he was actually prosecuted? This was all great news for Melissa. She can now present the fact that she was tried under a corrupt prosecution team. Then there was the findings by forensic pathologist Thomas Young. He was hired by Melissa's appellate attorney to review the findings of the medical examiner. Examining the stairs from the apartment where Mariah fell and the autopsy, he found the reasoning for the excessive, unexplainable bruising. Yes, there were bruises from the fall itself, but what was more intriguing to him was the brain hemorrhaging. When you suffer a brain injury, chemicals are released into the body that bring injuries, old and new, to the surface. So even if the fall didn't cause bruising, the spots where she hit the stairs and concrete would soon show up as highly visible bruises. As her blood would no longer be clotting, by the time she was close to death, bruising could have appeared from slight movements. Even laying down on her bed could have left a bruise on her back. The original examination correlated the bruises and brain injury to abuse, not the brain injury leading to bruising. In Thomas's opinion, they should have never come to the conclusion of child abuse since it wasn't witnessed. That diagnosis altered the investigation from the start. Melissa's post-conviction lawyer, Margaret Schmucker, has gone through the 3,000 pages of Melissa's court proceedings and CPS reports. Nowhere in them did she find any reports of abuse, violence, or any aggression towards the children at any time. 
As far as her murdering Mariah, she was not left alone with her for at least the 72 hours before her death. With a family that size, it was nearly impossible to have any alone time. Melissa will be granted a new hearing where she and her team will be able to present the state's false evidence, show that the state didn't give the defense favorable evidence, the scientific findings that were never shared, all in hopes she will be found innocent and sent home to her family. A family that has been torn apart by the loss of their sister, mother, siblings, home. Some of Melissa's children were so young when she went to prison, they have no memories of her. The twins she was pregnant with when she went away never knew their family. Others do remember her and miss her daily. Daniela, the oldest, followed in her mother's footsteps of a large family. She already has nine children of her own. Alexandria spoke with the documentary team. I'm not any kind of body language expert, nor has there been any kind of investigation towards her confession of being involved with Mariah's fall. But you can tell by her rocking and uncomfortable face that she carries some heavy emotions surrounding the ordeal. She, too, has a baby of her own and still talks about her lack of bond with her half-sister. She also admitted that, as an older child, she was the disciplinarian. She never did more than spank her siblings, but it was her job to cover when mom was using drugs. As far as the fall itself, she doesn't remember saying she pushed Mariah or if she fell. There is distance in the family now. The kids didn't get to grow up together. Some have families of their own. Some are still young. Her family still gets together, goes out dancing, but the pain of Melissa's absence is always felt. It's nearly unbearable for them to think about the hell she is in every day. For some, they've had to remove themselves from her life because it's just too much pain for them to handle. Writing, calling, visiting, they just can't do it. They know she shouldn't be there. Even her mother has been convinced. But what can they do? As for Peter Gilman, he still isn't sure if Melissa is guilty or not. Maybe Alex pushed Mariah, but if so, where was Melissa? As for not having the kids on the stand, that was Melissa's fault too. She was a bad mother and her children weren't disciplined. First off, what could the kids have even told him? Secondly, they were so unruly, they would have just been running amok in the courtroom, behavior that would have only upset the jury. So first off, fuck that guy. Yeah. Also, if you are trying to prove someone isn't aggressive, wouldn't you want to have their undisciplined children running around, proving how they aren't scared of their mother and that she wouldn't have displayed aggressive behavior towards them? Some people might hear that Melissa, and this is hopefully soon to be past tense, has given up her life for her daughter, and maybe that feels confusing. Or you're even frustrated that she didn't confront Alex about her treatment of Mariah before her death. But you have to remember, this is a woman who was abused in a variety of ways from a very young age. By all accounts, she was non-confrontational, which could easily mean even when it came to her own children. When Melissa was facing death, she wasn't scared. She felt that whatever was going to happen was going to happen. Either way, she and her children would be reunited one day. Until then, she reunites with Mariah in her dreams, where they play dress-up. Her 14 years behind bars have her missing the simple things we take for granted— sitting around the kitchen table with her children, being able to cook for them and watching them enjoy it, begging for seconds, being told how yummy it is. She misses their faces. She misses hearing them call her mom and visiting her own. The smell of their hair, their hugs, dancing with her family. She even misses traffic. She aches for the smell of cut grass, the sound of life like birds, music, wind, people talking. She knows she took it all for granted before. 
but once she's home, she hopes to have her children with her and to cherish every moment. I'm immediately recalling the episode on Angela McAnulty that I did Mm. where she's guilty of sin. She got to appeal because her lawyers were busy working on another case and they failed her. Right. And it's just shocking to see someone who wasn't didn't have those kind of um, accusations against her historically uh, not be able to get the same thing, you know. Mm hmm. Also, I have high concerns about this Alex girl. Yeah, it was interesting because obviously it's all alleged and it's all it's all hearsay within the kids and stuff. But there definitely were some nerves when she was speaking. She couldn't really sit still. She was kind of looking up and down. So that's not like she's a murderer because she was fidgety, but it's just. But why would they say that if there wasn't some truth to her hitting her, pushing her, bullying her? Yeah. And it's shocking. I think it speaks to um, the corruption and the racism that all the appeals were denied because it's like, well, who does how many people was this Armando guy like kind of infiltrated with, you know, how high into the appellate courts did he have pull or he owed someone or he had blackmail or whatever the corruption was, you know, and yet they were still like, well, look, she has a lot of kids and she did drugs. Yeah. And that's that. That's horrible because those are the types of things that are going to like condemn you in people's eyes mm-hmm. initially. And and that should not be a real consideration. Exactly. Well, and it's hard, you know, you're watching the documentary and it's not something like the Central Park Five or the West Memphis Three. It's not something where you're like, oh, my God, they just picked up the so wrong obviously people. Wrong, yeah, yeah. Like you just grab somebody. This and is kind of like, jail. well, is it wrong? Yeah. Yeah. This is, you know, it's a very complicated, like emotionally complicated because you're watching and it's like you do kind of feel frustrated towards her. It's kind of hard to root for her because you're like you are creating so many lives and creating difficult lives for them you know you it's like yeah I I realized she had a lot of a lot of baggage and childhood trauma that she dealt with it's just it's really hard to sit and watch right someone repeatedly have children and spend their money on drugs when they could be buying them dinner that's well and when you're exactly and when it's like the kids know to go to the food pantry to get food and that and again none of that makes you a bad person but boy, is that an easy target. That's what I'm saying. Like, because if you some hear white that woman, information, yeah, if you... some white woman had one child and it was their two year old baby who fell down some stairs, they would have easily been like, look at this brain hemorrhaging. And oh, wouldn't that have released the chemical? I can't remember what it was because I'm not a scientist uh, and caused all this bruising. That's what I was saying is when you have that information. Yeah. It is really hard to get past that mm-hmm. because it's human nature to be like, well, I wouldn't do that. Yeah. I wouldn't treat my kids like that. You yeah. know, so she had a lot against her right off the bat. And I think people people want to see you punished for other things. So even if it's not related, so it's like you deserve to be in trouble because you had too many kids and you couldn't watch all of them. So even if she did fall. That's still your fault for being a bad, unattentive mother. You know, and I think that people get focused on that, you know, that it's easy. It's easy to convict on something unrelated or something bigger like this. 
when you're already upset on a, whatever your moral grounds are yeah. with other stuff. It's hard to say. I mean, I could definitely see people thinking that. I don't know if that's necessarily true or if it was the case, the evidence before them made sense to them because so much was left out. Right. There was no child on the stand talking about how their mother mm-hmm. never hit them. So, it's, yeah, you it's have this woman who has no one vouching for her. Yeah. No one's saying. And that's hard. And it's hard to see the justice system not working as it should. This, mm-hmm. even though he's a public defender, he has a, he's sworn in. Like he oh. has things he needs to do. You got to watch this. You want to reach the TV and strangle this guy. He is so smug and just playing dumb. And, but you can see on his face, he knows he's busted. Because they're like, well, why did you start working with the DA right after this? Oh, well, it just, like, oh, I guess maybe that does look bad. No, no, no. They just uh, wanted to give me that job. It's just. I hate it when people, there these corrupt people do this and meet the stereotype that we have. And well, you wonder how many people are dealing with the same situation. Yeah. Well, because it's not broken. It's working exactly how it's supposed to work. Just against everyone that's poor and of color. Where where do you fall? Where do you think? Me? Yeah. Oh, I don't think she did it by any means. I don't think she was a great mom, to be honest. Right. Don't record this, but no, I think I think that's fair to say. You're doing drugs in the bathroom when your kids need you, yeah, and I your like, older kids are disciplining your younger kids. I'm like that's human, not a good. And mom. I have a very hard time, very hard time accepting that people deal with their problems in that way. But right. I also did not have those traumas as a child, right? It's hard to see past that sometimes, it is. but I see how wrong the courts were right. to her because that doesn't make her a criminal. Anyway, we'll keep you posted if there are any updates on her case and appeals and hearings and everything coming up. So uh, stay tuned for that. little bit less and we should be good hello another year another Father's oh god Day. there's a spider josh you're gonna need I to see get it, it. Do you, are you okay is that a good level for you yes where yes. is it it's far here. from you yeah, very far. you better get it before it runs to me oh, though what kind is it it's a little black little black guy ah black. the daddy long legs know they're okay in yeah here, daddy long nobody legs else can be here nobody else you please work fast oh you guys man. i had a sick hilarious joke yesterday okay that made everybody laugh and okay. i said this is why i get invited to these we were talking about going to Coldplay, and we were just kind of laughing because it's it's just not on it's so weird it's, yes all none of us like them. the <laughs> like, fact that like weird she and doug are on some like rom-com well, getaway doug and... just joined because he she already had the room he didn't go to the concert oh i'm sure not but yeah the fact she uh, anyway, but anyway so we were ahead. joking about it and and yara's like what do they even call Coldplay fans? And I go, cold source. Ah! Like, really? <laughs> Everybody laughed. And then That's Matt funny. goes, rude. I am recovering from one. <laughs> it's true. We couldn't share a smoke the other day. He's like, no, I'm having an outbreak. <laughs> Peter Gabriel? Yep. Yep. And there's another. So you are anti-anything Genesis related. Yep. Except for Genesis, the vocal jazz group that I was part of for three Dipper, years. The <laughs> big one is the best in the night sky. I wasn't in it's that bigger year. and better and better than all of the others. <laughs> that was pretty good. Jazz band, baby. I had a question and that just knocked it right out of my mind. <laughs> 
I'll get, get back, back to me at the oh. end of this recording or okay. I'm going to shit. <laughs> another year, another daddy's day. <laughs> Give your daddy a gift. Ew. The gift of pleasure. Oh. We're only talking about your dad. Oh, of course. <laughs> I got him a big bag of balloons and a little helium tank. You don't want to know what I got your dad, Alicia. Oh. VD, I heard. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> okay, old timey. VD. I go old school. I've had it so long now. Embarrassingly, that's what made the noise over here. Your pussy. <laughs> yeah, it popped. I'm sorry. Oh, well, you had those ping pong balls again. <laughs> That's my ping pong ball trick. I always wanted to try that. I still haven't done it. Maybe I'll do that today. Sorry, <laughs> I got a swing by Dick's Sporting Goods. Oh, I have ping pong balls. I have to clean them because Henry plays with them. <laughs> attempts were made. Attempts were. Attempts were. Oh, my gosh. Attempts were made to. Am I okay? I don't know. To a butt pat, pat. <laughs> You're looking for. Uh, hello. Oh. Oh. oh boy, that was a lubricated one. Thank you. They call them beefers. <laughs> <laughs> no, that was up top. Mm, Sound like a beefer to me. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> that sounded like a cartoon supervillain laugh. Yes. I like that. I've been working on it. I did not. You knew what you were doing. I didn't. I wasn't thinking. <coughs> but I do want to scream. He doesn't like to be picked on. I do. He's sensitive. It's been a while since we've done that, though. Been I think we owe him. That's true. We missed you last week. We owe a gang up. Mm-hmm. Or I call it a gang. <laughs> <laughs> She's like, I love gang bangs. Why does everyone get weird about that? I love it. <laughs> it's like those old people that don't know. You know, like, LOL, oh, live, right. li live, what is it? Oh, God, never mind. <laughs> Come on, we're just playing around as goofing. We're, we're just, just having gang a little gangbang. <laughs> it's a little gangbanging. That's right. We love a little gangbanging. What'd you do this weekend, Emily? <laughs> oh, I gangbanged with my pals. We changed who we're banging we, uh, on, but as we're a gang, we like to bang. another bukkake. <laughs> <laughs> Don't you be trying to push this bukkake on me. <laughs> yeah. You take your bukkake bucket, you get out of here. Malarkey, Bukaki, and shenanigans. Yep, they mean the exact same thing, right? Computer, what's another word for silly? Bukaki? <laughs> Got it. So I was at the bagel spot, and I was like, can you guys throw some schmegma on there for me? <laughs> In February of 2007. I don't even know what I'm saying anymore. No, no, no. It wasn't, you didn't do it wrong. I just, uh, I could hear Emily. I was laughing. That's all. No. Yeah, that's all. It wasn't you. That's all. It was Emily. <gasps> Bukaki queen. <laughs> that that still seems like a real fresh hurt. <laughs> it's just right at the surface. I didn't mean Any injustice. I'm sorry, my gynecologist, my OB, wouldn't They let wouldn't me let you go... get your braces off of yeah. your vagina? No. <laughs> you got vagina teeth? I had an appointment to get my braces off before I gave birth, and unfortunately I had to give birth early, and she wouldn't let me. Can I just go get to the orthodontist real quick? And unfortunately. Get is that because oh. you didn't want to look like a teen mother? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> I already went through my pregnancy with braces. Oh, God. So much barfing that's with braces. Worst. I barfed all the time, but that's probably the only reason my upper teeth are straight because my <laughs> lower ones, I couldn't get my retainer in because I would throw up every time I tried to put it in. So they got crooked. She barfed her teeth crooked. I would wake up to you brushing your teeth and barfing. <laughs> I can't help oh. it. 
Same time? Here we go. When you suffer a brain Im- injury, like me, right now. Murder in the Rain is a Cascade Media production, written and hosted by Emily Rowney, Alicia Holland, and Josh McCullough, edited by Josh McCullough. You can always contact us at murderintherain at gmail.com or through our website, murderintherain.com. If you just can't get enough of Murder in the Rain, for as little as $5 a month, you'll have exclusive access to bonus episodes at patreon.com. You can find us on all of the socials, and for more true crime, follow at M underscore Murder in the Rain on TikTok, and you can also listen to Alicia and Josh on their other show, Always Be My Sisters. And suck my balls. <laughs> <laughs>